Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. This month is Black History Month, of course, and so this series is really going to be focusing on highlighting the experiences of Black individuals or African-American individuals that are leaving the carceral system and coming back into the community. So we're really trying to look at the unique challenges that these individuals encounter post-incarceration. Also looking at what solutions and recommendations can we provide for better supporting these individuals. Um, Just getting some information out there to you all for people in the African-American community, if you have a family member that may be going through this process or if you just know somebody, just kind of bringing that information to you. Um, And additionally, we want to also just celebrate the successes of Black individuals or African-American individuals who have been able to successfully transition or have been able to transform their lives. Um, So, I really hope you all have enjoyed the series so far. Um, In today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about African-American men um, and spending some time there trying to understand the experiences of African-American men, as well as some of the additional factors that they have to navigate when they go through this process. And as always, talking about recommendations and suggestions for supporting African-American men post-incarceration. So to do that today, I have a special guest with us. Um, Her name is Dr. Tisha Smith. Um, Dr. Smith received her doctorate in education, um, executive leadership from St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York. She holds a master's degree in public policy from the Rochester Institute of Technology, and right now she's currently licensed as a therapist in NYS, I'm assuming that's New York of some sort, and works at the Monroe County Department of Public Health in Rochester, New York. She was appointed to be the Addiction Services Director for Monroe County in 2020, but prior to that, she was the Director of Inmate Drug and Alcohol Programming for the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. Um, She's also taught courses in drug and alcohol addiction, um, worked with families dealing with drug and alcohol addictions, and criminal justice policy. And her research includes criminal justice policy, homicide, criminal victimization, forensic entomology, gangs and prisoner re-entry um and dr smith i want to say thank you for coming on to share your expertise and your experience um and if there's anything you want to add feel free okay no that's that's it's it's funny when you hear people talk about yourself you're like i did all that so yeah i did all that (laughs) um so no thank you for having me i appreciate the opportunity to talk about my research um it's it's one of my favorite topics and it's not something that like you sit around and talk about at the dinner table but it's something that is important to me and so um i'm i'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about it well look and we are grateful to have you here um like i said more life we're always interested in looking for people that are you know, whether they're doing research or if they're practically working in the field with individuals. So I guess before we like get into our conversation, um, people, people get into this area in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have very practical experience. Um, Some, they just kind of came along with, you know, in their journey through school or whatever the case may be. I want to ask you, how did you get involved in 
you know, justice-involved populations, re-entry? Like, how did that become your interest? So I had um, finished graduate school um, in public policy, and I was looking for a job and couldn't find a job. So I was unemployed for a while, and um, my mentor had called me and said, hey, there's this position that's available uh, working with young offenders, but he knew that my work had always been with victims. And so I kind of had, like, this, like, emotional struggle figuring out like well I've been working with victims for so long like how am I going to work with offenders but I needed a job so I took the job and ran the young offenders reentry program um it was for a local um drug and alcohol program here in Rochester that had gotten a federal grant and so my position was stationed in the Monroe County Jail and um I did reentry services and supervised a team of uh intensive case managers who went into the jail and um helped inmates plan for when they got out and then we would work with them when they got out in the community. And so it was um a great time. I had a wonderful team. I, I met some really great people and really liked my time working in the jail. It was a federal grant, so it ended. And I ended up going into the treatment world, and that's when I became a therapist. And um, I was there for a significant amount of time, probably like seven years of my life. And during that time, um, I tended to get patients that came on the inpatient unit that were um, either behavioral issues, criminal justice involved, sex offenders. Those were the folks that they tended to give to me. And... um, I was kind of bored after a while. Like I wasn't really asked to do much in that position. So um, I figured um, I would go back to school. I found this program and uh, the educational executive leadership program. And I was able to tailor my research towards something that I enjoyed. Um, So they said, you're going to be wed to this topic for three years, pick something that, you know, you like. And so I started to think like, where was I happiest in my career? And that was when I was working in corrections and with um, folks that were incarcerated. And so um, I just, you know, so happened to, it was, it was weird how it happened, but I was on the phone with somebody trying to arrange a halfway house for one of my patients. And this particular individual and I knew each other from, you know, working together for so long and African-American male served time. And I was just like, you know what? There are a lot of African-American men that I keep meeting in this field that had served time but got out and got into helping professions and I was like there's something about this I might want to take a look at this and so when you know the topic came up um I was like you know what I want to look at those folks that were successful after they got out and figure out what it was that made them successful and try and see if we can replicate that in programming for folks that are incarcerated And um, so I did the research. Everything was cool. And right around that time, my friend who was the head of the drug and um, alcohol program at the sheriff's office was leaving, called me and said, hey, I'm leaving my position. Do you want it? I'm like, "Uh, yeah. And um, I got the position and was able to replicate stuff that I had learned from my research in the program um, here in our local jail. And I was grateful for the opportunity. So um, I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but uh, the long and short of it was I just know that I really enjoyed um, working with folks that were incarcerated because it provided me an opportunity to um, educate, motivate, encourage people to, you know, get into recovery, get into mental health, um, get back into school, and, you know, do the right thing once they got out, and that was
um, I enjoyed. And so I wanted to um, study how to do it. And that's how I ended up doing it. So that's the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, great story. And um, I have a couple of questions um, as I was thinking and as you were going through um, just about your experiences, if that's okay. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, before we jump into, you know, actually talking about the individuals going through the process, um, I haven't had a lot of people on here that um, have, you know, actual experience. Well, let me not say that. They haven't done a lot of work maybe in the field. They've done, they've done research and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. What was your experience like as, you know, being on the administrative side trying to help these individuals? Um. Initially, um, I was in one facility, and in that facility, um, I kind of um, was given free range to do um, whatever I wanted, uh, you know, that was creative and funky and innovative, and um, we were able to do a lot. We brought in a dog program. We brought in um, pet therapy. We brought in all sorts of stuff to kind of do some think outside of the box instead of doing the regular kind of programming. And uh, then we moved to another location where we didn't have as much um, green space and freedom to do those kinds of funky things. Um, and in that environment, um, it was definitely a struggle um, to do programming the way I kind of envisioned it because I was always fighting against a system that was about arresting and detaining and not necessarily providing services. And so here I am a civilian staff member in the sheriff's office saying like, hey, um, I gotta bring this housing program in. And then I get it that, you know, now you've got all these extra civilians in the building and you gotta worry about security for them as well. I, I, I really understood their position, but at the same time, I understood the position of me as a person that cares about these, these, these folks that are incarcerated and wanted, you know, and I wanted to help um, change things so that when they got out, they didn't end up coming back. And I wanted the quality of life to change even while they were in, you know, inside. Um, so I think, I think, you know, throughout my career, it was really, you know, um, I had a lot of help and I had really good team members and we just kind of forged a path and we did what we needed to do. Um, I think toward the end of my stay in corrections, it was a little bit more difficult because, uh, you know, the environment and the mindset that you had to kind of, you know, fight against. Um, but at the same time, for me, looking like I look as a Black Muslim woman in, in a position of authority in a system that really didn't look like me as far as an administrative system, um, I thought it was extremely important for me to be in that position so that they could see someone who looked like them who was actually um, in charge of something in that environment. And so um, I really took that role um, very, very, very seriously. Um, and I don't know if other people, you know, in, in administration did that, but for me, it was extremely important for them to actually um, see me and know, you know, I meant business and, you know, I'm here to help you, um, help me help you kind of thing. Um, so I just looked at it from a position of, um, I was grateful to be there. I really, really, really wanted that position. And um, I knew I brought a lot to the table. And so I wanted them to actually see somebody that was confident and, you know, melanated, you know, in that position. So I was just like, 
I, I just took it uh, uh, more seriously than just a job, you know? Yeah, because in a sense, it, it's true advocacy when you take it that serious. Most um, definitely. And I think it's when you're working with people that, you know, are minority communities, it's really important to see people on the other side yes. in those positions. Um, yes. You know, to be able to have find a way to build some type of connection mm-hmm. um and a lot of times it's it's real easy to do that when you see people mm-hmm. that look like you and so it was also important for me to communicate to them that just because I look like this doesn't mean that I don't know things right so you can't exactly. run game on me um you know even the spanish-speaking folks like they be speaking spanish I speak spanish too but they didn't know I spoke spanish so I'm like Ta-da! <laughs> I speak Spanish. Uh, so it was just really, you know, again, it was one of those things for me, being able to, one, establish that therapeutic rapport, but also let people know that, you know, I'm in business, but I'm, I mean business because I'm here to help you, and I need you to take this seriously. Um, this is your life. And so it was, it was good, and it was um, also, like I said, it was a little stressful toward the end of my, my tenure there. Um, because I didn't realize how much I was fighting until I got a new position and realized I didn't have as much stress. And I was like, oh, I was fighting on a daily. Like, I was trying to get people at, like, housing programs, self-help groups, like, anything I could get. In particular, I I really struggled with trying to get um, case management because we knew case management worked. Um, When I ran that Young Offenders Reentry Program, at that point in time, there was some preliminary research that indicated that the recidivism rates among the people that were getting out of the county jail were upwards in the 90s, 90%. Of people that got out came back and when i did that young young offenders reentry program we got our recidivism rate of the participants in our program down to seven percent so i know case management works and so when you have somebody coming into the facility to work with people while they're there to make a plan for when they get out which is key because it's not just when you get out here's my card come see me when you get out it's i'm here while you're here let's do some planning, let's do some strategizing. And we know that that worked. And so when I was in that role, I was trying to get that. And so it was really difficult because most of the organizations needed to be paid for that service and they couldn't bill while someone was incarcerated. So it was really hard to get services like that. And so whenever I could find somebody who would do that kind of planning with somebody, I was trying to get those organizations in. And so they would always be like, not another organization. I'm like, yep, another organization. Let's go. So it was just, yeah, when I, like I said, when I didn't have that stress, I recognized how much I was fighting. I, I really was fighting a lot, a lot. And I think that's like one of the biggest difficulties is like you, we just explained, you're trying to, promote, uh, you know, quality of life for these individuals, a better quality of life, well-being, mm-hmm. um, as well as breaking the cycle. But it's really hard to do that when the organization you are yeah. within has, you know, goals of their own that are, yeah. you know, in a sense, op- opposite, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're not really focusing on rehabilitation and treatment right now. Yeah. And, and I get it. I mean, they've been doing that for years. Like yeah. that's how they operated. And then now all of a sudden here comes a program and we're all about, you know, behavioral health and helping. And, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with, um, um, someone in law enforcement one time, and I was talking about this kid who had been in a fight and, 
I had heard it called over the system and um, I'd moved out of the way because civilians, you got to get up against the wall when there's a code. So there was a code and I was up against the wall and they brought this kid out of this elevator and he wasn't wearing a shirt and he was covered in sweat and he had his handcuffs and he was a little tiny little dude. So I was like, I had mentioned to this officer, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I saw that tiny kid. That, uh, it looked kind of sad to me. And he was like, do you know what he's in for? I'm like, I don't care what he's in for. I was like, and then he was like, he instigated the argument and blah, blah, blah. And then he started telling me about his crimes and he was like, we're going to see him again. And I remember going home that night and I'm thinking he just removed hope from the equation. You don't know if the kid has a light bulb moment or the kid meets the right person to help motivate him to make those changes, um, met him tomorrow and then he you know he had a eureka moment and then he does better and he doesn't come back like i I just remember like one individual removing hope from the equation and i remember thinking how sad that was because if you're surrounded by other people who have removed hope from the equation and then imagine being that person and not having anybody around them to like say like you can do better like you can go to school you could get a job you can learn a trade you can you know not come here again and so I just wanted to be like that ray of hope in the midst of all that chaos in that environment so um like I said I really took that seriously um and I don't I don't know about other people and how whether or not they did but I know I did because of how I look and you know who raised me you know yeah and you know and as you should like as I feel like everybody should you know, in those positions, but, you know, sadly, that's not always the case. Um, mm-hmm. And those mentalities do float around in yeah. organizations. And I don't think people realize how detrimental those mentalities can be Definitely. and how they continue to push people back into the very actions or criminal activity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we don't want them to be involved in. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I'm going to see them again because you haven't instilled anything. Not that that's your role, as an officer but i mean a human being to human being like you don't have to be all negative like i mean i don't know just drop drop some wisdom and say you know what they got this um electrician training program over at blah 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 and then keep it moving like just plant some seeds like instead of like all the negativity so again you know i i understood it because i'm behavioral health and i'm coming into a system that really is about detaining and maintaining safety among the people that are there i get it but at the same time i didn't get it because i was like you can be a human being you don't have to be nasty <laughs> but- yeah that's that is true and i think just coming from a helping um service industry in general mm-hmm. i don't think our principles or yeah. maybe even some of our beliefs will ever fully align with how some of these oh i agree inpatient yeah. or correctional facilities yeah. are operated um yeah. and it's how do you find the line between there and... But, you know, I did make some headway because I, I did do a lot of educating. Mm-hmm. And um, I turned some minds. I, I got some people on my side. And, you know, and it, it was funny because in the original facility that I was in, it got to the point where deputies were coming to me with ideas for programming. And, and, and like, the head of the um, building had looked at me and he was like, I have never ever heard a deputy say like hey we need some more aa meetings like like ever and i was like 
that's pretty cool. And he's like, you did that. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> um, but it was a blessing, again, to actually see deputies who were just kind of like, you know, doing their job, but not really thinking about the need for services um, get to the point where they're like, yeah, we need more services. Let's bring some more. And so I was, I was you know, I did change some minds. Um, I mean, if I had been there longer, uh, you know, I probably would have worked on a couple more minds. Um, but my time was up. <laughs> and look, hey, if we can change one. Yes. There we go. We'll take it. Exactly. Um, well, I guess if we can, I want to shift a little bit because I do want to talk about your dissertation. Yes. I know your dissertation focuses on, you know, African-American men that are formerly incarcerated, but you're specifically looking at how they successfully negotiate mm-hmm. um, their these socially disorganized environments when they're coming back after incarceration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we like get into all the nitty gritty of that, I really, if you have any stats or anything as far as of like um, African American men incarceration rates, recidivism rates, those type of things, I, I, I've learned that numbers really paint the picture. Yeah. Yeah, but see, that was the thing for me, because there were a a lot of folks, you know, that I was surrounded with in my program where they talked about numbers painting the picture. And I'm like, yeah, numbers don't paint the picture, the individual paints the picture. So that's why I wanted to tell their stories. And so I'm, I'm not a numbers person at all. And so I was always like, I want to know about that individual. I want to talk to people. And so that's how I ended up doing the narrative instead of um, just kind of painting a picture. We had a significant po- uh, population of people, um, African-American men that were coming out of the New York State Department of Corrections and coming right back to Rochester. And they were coming back to their environments that they left. And um, I talked about Rochester being socially disorganized in the sense of low educational attainment, low house household um, income, um, low civic participation, those kinds of things. And they were coming right back into that system. But some men were able to thrive, despite the fact that they were coming back into that socially disorganized environment. So I don't really have a lot of numbers for you today, but I can tell you um, why I wanted to focus on that was really because I had met so many of them. I had worked with so many of them. I knew some of them um, prior to working in the field and I knew that they had had, and then they helped lead me to others that were like them. And, and I just, just knew that, you know, there were so many people that were on parole that were African-American men in our community. And again, there were some that were just, you know, hitting it out of the park and doing what they needed to do and like why is that and then why as a research body as criminal justice researchers why do we tend to always focus on recidivism we focus on you know indeterminate sentencing disparate sentencing with you know crack and cocaine and um we talk about recidivism and we talk about you know people you know breaking parole and you know those kinds of things but we never ever talk about the guy who got out and started his own business the guy who got out and um is now working in a halfway house the guy that got out and is now a drug and alcohol counselor and and is licensed in New York, you know, like we never talk about those people. And I knew so many of them and I was like, I wanted to celebrate them really. And that was why, um, this research became so, um, uh, so important to me because I just, you know, we never sing their praises. We always talk about the, the ones that are going back. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think you brought up a great point, too, about, you know, the numbers versus the individual, because a lot of times it is really easy to just clump people into 
a group and Mm -hmm. not think about the individualistic Mm -hmm. or the individuality of that person. Everybody has a different process. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, we know the general kind of challenges, but like everybody's process looks different. Everybody uses different strategies. And I will say one thing that, you know, as I continue to learn about reentry and continue to learn specifically about this area, we, there's not a lot of, well, more recently there have been just research on the perspectives of African-American, and this is in general, what not men, men and women, um, mm-hmm. just trying to hear their stories um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we don't know their perspectives. We don't know what makes them successful, um, mm-hmm. what contributes to their journey that's good. Right. Um, we don't know right. those things. So I would say the work is very right. much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was um, I was thinking back to when I was doing my policy um, thesis, um, I had interviewed um, families and friends of people who were um, killed in a homicide locally, and um, I had a, a rather small sample size, and there was this mother that I hung out with for a while during our interview, and she had shown me pictures and she brought out pictures of the funeral and her son was laying in a casket. Now, first of all, her son was kind of doing some gang activity and that kind of thing. And, you know, had his colors and bandana and all of that kind of stuff. And um, every picture you saw him, he either had a beer can or he had his middle fingers up. Every picture she had. And then the picture of him in his casket, he was laying there with this green teddy bear frog. And I was like, yo, uh, what's up with the frog? <laughs> and she said... Um, nobody knew except for me and him that he needed that frog to sleep at night and I was like uh it broke my heart and so when it came time for me to defend my my uh thesis one of the questions was you know you had a, a very small sample size and you know how do you think that that you know impacted your research and I was like if I had done a survey I would have never learned that story about the green frog and that's important to know that this young man again, is somebody's child and had hopes and dreams and aspirations. And though he had the persona of a, you know, gangster kind of guy, he needed that frog to sleep. And so it changes your mindset about this individual from going from statistic to, man, that poor kid, right? And we would never have that if I didn't, if I, if I just did a survey among families that attended these meetings. So same thing with this, like the richness of the stories that I got from the people that I interviewed, there would have been no other way to capture that kind of information unless I did this project the way I did it. And so for me, like I said, I was really wanted to hear it from their lips as opposed to me gathering the information, interpreting their story. And then, you know, ha- here's my chart. You know, I didn't want that. I really wanted to hear the stories. And some of those stories were just like mind blowing. And I kept thinking like these people are strangers and they're opening up so much and telling me so much about themselves. And it was such a deep, meaningful story to hear. Um, And I just, and so one of the questions I asked everybody um, at the end of my interviews with them, I was like, you know, and some of them knew me, but for those people that didn't, even the people that did know me, I'm like, why did you, you know, agree to this interview? And every last one of those people said it was because I was an African-American woman getting their doctorate and they wanted to help. 
and I was just, I remember like I kept getting teary eyes and maybe like after like the third one, I'm still tearing up because I was like, y'all don't know me. And you just told me some deep, deep stuff. And so I think the way everything worked out was, um, you know, to their benefit and to my benefit, because I really don't want, I didn't want charts and graphs and numbers because this is too deep of a story to tell. Um, and, and, and people needed to hear what they had to say, you know? Yeah. And I agree. I definitely believe that people are, we are the experts of our own experiences. Um, and there's so much power in, you know, just being able to tell our stories. Um, so I know, I know what you did your dissertation on, um, and I want the audience to understand why you chose certain things. You've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, Rochester being a, a socially disorganized community. Um, but why did you choose that specifically? Like, why, you know, like, why is that important to know, you know that it's a socially disorganized community? Actually, one of the wives of one of the people that I interviewed was like, why isn't she studying women? Why isn't she studying men? I don't know this sounds sketchy and I was just kind of like um one of the things I mean I I joke about it a lot but when I was an inpatient they had decided to split the program up into a male program and a female program which I thought was really good because you know it's a crucial time and so women had you know sexual trauma or men had sexual trauma they're not going to bring that out in a mixed group like that so I chose the men's team because as a therapist, I recognize how much, like if I'm working with women, I care so much and I just want to like shake people and like, listen to me, get away from him. Uh, and so I knew that about myself. So I chose to work with the men. Um, and um, because of that, like I said, I was interacting with so many men um, that were in helping professions that had served time. And I was like, there's something to this. And I wanted to study men because that's, generally who I hung out with um, at work. Um, Well, not hung out with, but those are people that I served, right? And so um, I just chose African-American men that I knew had served time. And so I really, again, wanted to focus on something positive because stereotypically, again, when you're talking about any kind of research in African-American men, it's usually going to be something negative. And so I was like, I don't want to have an end product that's going to be something negative and i want to celebrate um african-american men and let's let's find out from african-american men what made them tick and how to you know what was going on prior to uh being incarcerated and when they got out what was different and can we teach that can we help in any way um do what you did to stay out and then um help other people do the same and so I kind of focused on men for that reason, just because that was who I knew um, and that was who I worked with. And again, I wanted to be part of something that was positive and not negative. And I wanted to contribute to a body of work that focused on African-American men in a positive light. Yes. Employment. Mm-hmm. Were there any challenges that were unique to african-american men that you noticed there were um i think it was about two of the individuals that i spoke to um were informed while they were incarcerated that they were hiv positive and so getting out um back into the community they required um different services that um the others in my my study were not um 
in need of. Um, and so there were a lot of healthcare issues that folks had to navigate, insurance issues that folks had to navigate that um, would have probably hindered, you know, anybody. Um, but on top of that, you're coming back out and um, now you have this issue. So I think um, healthcare was an issue, um, just reintegrating with their families, because one of the things that I really tried to get people get across to people um, was that the role that you had before you went in might not be the role you have when you're coming back out because people life has gone on without you and so people have learned to thrive or try to thrive without you and so you coming home you can't just roll back into you know I'm dad and you gotta listen to me and all that stuff because you know life has gone on without you and so there's going to have to be a reacclimation period to you being in their presence so um i think for a lot of the folks that i interviewed that whole reacclimating back into their families was something um because there was for some of them a lot of shame and guilt and a lot of them were held down by their mothers and their mothers were older and they were still getting that kind of support. And so there was a, a certain amount of shame and guilt coming back out that they had to deal with in addition to learning how to, you know, live. Um, so I heard that a lot. Um, and this, the stigma, there were a lot of folks that were talking about stigma and that was actually one of the, the um, things that um, I identified as one of the things that those folks that were successful didn't care about that stigma. They didn't allow the stigma to hinder them from doing what they need to do. They just always pressed forward. When they heard no because of their record, they went somewhere else. One guy in particular said he stayed there as a volunteer when he had applied for a job and they had turned him down as he could as a volunteer to the point where they were like, oh my God, we should hire this guy. And they ended up hiring him. So it was a real sense of fortitude that these folks had that made them successful. They were like, I don't care if you don't hire felons. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do this. You don't want me to be at your place of employment. I'm going to go learn how to do it myself and open up my own business and, you know, do it for myself. And so there was a lot of um, just um, ignoring what other people thought about them or ignoring the, you know, the societal pressures of, you know, what to do with felons. Um, and yeah, so I think those things, so like the healthcare, and like you said, just the traditional barriers, which are, you know, housing, clothing, food, shelter, mental health, substance use disorder treatment, and yeah, those were all barriers for folks. Um, and then there was also just, you know, the mental barrier, right? So you have a mindset going into um, your incarceration period um, and really fighting that battle of, you know, your old self um, versus now your new self coming out um, and, you know, resorting back into some of those behaviors. And there were quite a few that actually did go back to their old behaviors once they got out. And then they had the epiphany, but a um, majority of folks had that light bulb moment while they were incarcerated. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's always better if you have it while you're incarcerated, um, so you don't have to continue going through that cycle, mm -hmm. but I do I do think that is great, because um, you don't hear about the stories of people who are, you know, stigma is just so pervasive in these individuals' mm -hmm. lives that um, 
a lot of people, they get stuck into the fact of, you know, well, they're not going to hire me. So, and they don't take that extra step like that one individual did, or they don't stay in that job because they didn't (laughs) hire you, but I'm going to stay as a volunteer anyway. Uh Uh Um, And we don't get to hear about those, but we also don't see that happening a lot. Like, um, and Uh that's because, you know, mindset, mindset starts to interfere Um, with those type of things. And I know your dissertation talked about some other cultural like resilience factors that were coming into play. Do you care to talk about some of those, share some sure. of that? Sure. It was interesting how religion played a role in in most of these men's lives, um, either Christianity or Islam. Um, there were quite a few people that um, were religious prior to going in, but their faith um, got deepened while they were there. Um, Some people converted to Islam while they were in and um, still are Muslims, you know, on the outside. Um, There was, um, you know, a real unique sense among these folks that they had to do things differently. And again, like you said, it it was nice that they had it while they were inside um, so that they could plan to do those things on the outside. But, you know, for some folks, it took a little bit more um, getting knocked around um by life um before they had that epiphany um i think um as far as um culture a lot of them had support from families um and still you know while they were incarcerated they had strong family networks on the outside but um strong family networks um while they were inside as well um the you know there was also um really asking for help like instead of just you know I'm a man I'm gonna tough this out or I know what I'm doing or you know I'm gonna do this on my own asking people for help was something that um every last one of them learned how to do and um they did it without you know the machismo right without you know being afraid to say, hey, I don't know how, I don't know where to go, I don't know how to do this, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I think all of those protective factors really, you know, just the being able to rely on yourself and do something for yourself um, and asking for help when you didn't know stuff um, or you needed assistance. Um, those were all um, protective factors that I think um, everybody that I spoke to had. Um, there were um, quite a few people uh, I'm thinking of probably about four of them at least that talked about not really having a lot of family um, support like they were there but you know I'm sent far away and they're not like you know visiting and sending money and that kind of thing um, and so there were some folks that felt alone in this process but again all those other you know I'm gonna do I'm gonna do better and I was doing, you know, all those kind of um, things that made them successful, all of those things came into play for them, um, despite not having um, that community. But for some, they just made their own communities, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, So, you know, my family isn't around, but I got, you know, this person from this church or this person from this mosque who's like helping me out. You know, there was always um, somebody to help. And I think it's uh, just interesting just because like religion, um, 
from my understanding and from my own experience has always just played like a very important role in the black community. Mm-hmm. So really being able to lean into religion and, you know, mm-hmm. find a purpose and, yeah. you know, find that tenacity Mm-hmm. It's so important for these individuals and especially mm-hmm. for black men. I see it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, they go in and their faith deepens yeah. um, and then they come out and they, they feel more purposeful. So they're able mm-hmm. to go out and do these things. And mm-hmm. I agree, like social support is so important. Family. Mm-hmm. But we know a lot of black men sometimes are returning to, you know, yeah. broken families. Um, yeah. They're, that they're trying, you said we're trying to repair, but mm-hmm. they still need that social support. But you mm-hmm. also have to have that um, ability to ask for help. I will say mm-hmm. this is something I've recently just learned about is there's research. Uh, it's an emerging area about masculinity and how that impacts reentry, mm-hmm. um, how that um, fosters successful reentry. Because like mm-hmm. you were just talking about, a lot of men, especially black men, put on this persona of the tough guy. Um, mm-hmm. So they're not asking for help. Yeah. Yeah. They want to do it on their own, but you don't know how to do it on your own. Some of y'all have been locked up for 10, 20 years. Right. Right. That was also something that I addressed when I was talking to folks, because um, there was a sense of really a, a reckoning for all of them where they just had to like, let go of all of the, you know, identities that they had, strip those away and then rebuild kind of thing. Um, I think that happened for everybody that I spoke to, um, where there was like, you know, not, not, you know, a dissociative kind of state, but like, that's the old me, that's my old behavior. And now I'm seeing clearly, um, I need to kind of rebuild and reimagine who I am. And and so I used to call it, you know, deprogramming and reprogramming um, because, I mean, you know, if you're street smart, I mean, that's what you know. Um, but now this new you is like, you know what? I don't know how to do this. Can, can you help me? Where that wouldn't have happened before because I still have this mask I need to wear. Um, so... I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I, and I also think that that's a great area to focus on because that was something that, that always struck me working with men. Like, how am I as a therapist going to have group therapy and have men kind of just, you know, let go of their guard and just be real for a second and, and really talk about some issues. And um, so it was um, always something that I thought about and, I wondered, you know, as me as a woman and then as Muslim and, you know, older or whatever, like, how do they work with me and get to that nitty gritty kind of stuff? And and they were always able to, which I was grateful for. I never had a problem with, you know, the fact that I was a woman and them talking about men's issues. It just kind of worked. Um, but yeah, I think all of those men had the ability to do that, which was great. No, it really is. And like to be able to evoke that level of like vulnerability um, from individuals who have carried their self in certain way, a certain way or have this belief that they should carry themselves in a certain Mm way Mm -hmm. um, is powerful. And, you know, I'm so grateful that those men Mm -hmm. were able to have you in their life Mm -hmm. um, so they to get all of that out. Because I can't imagine how long they've been holding it up. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I was always I always felt so privileged. You know what I mean? Like. 
I'm just a regular person. Like, you know, and, and most of the jobs that I had, it was like, I needed a job. So I just kind of took it. Um, but I felt privileged to work with folks, you know, like I, I don't know. I really looked at it from a spiritual standpoint. Like I was blessed to have this job. Um, because of this job, I'm able to, you know, afford the puppy treats that I need to afford and I'm able to, you know, live the lifestyle that I have. But I always, I never took that for granted. The fact that I'm dealing with another human being and like in this moment of vulnerability, how am I um, going to help this person move from point A to point B? And um, I never took that for granted. Just like these interviews, like I was always just like, dang, you don't even know me. You telling me this stuff like, like this is deep. And, you know, I mean, I was trying to like hold it together and look professional, but I was like, I wanted to cry. Like, this is some deep stuff. And I always wondered why they, you know, and so I said, like, why'd you agree to do this interview? And when they, they brought in the fact that, you know, I'm a black woman and I'm trying to do this, like they wanted to help. I was like, that's what this is about. And so that was also another protective factor or another factor of their success, their willingness to help other people just because they could. And so um, I think there were two entrepreneurs out of the whole group. The rest that I interviewed were all in helping professions, but all of them talked about wanting to help young people not get into the system like they had gotten into the system and so that's why they were working in halfway houses that's why they became counselors and that's why they were you know seeking out education to um, get into the helping field so that they um, could prevent people from going down the path that they went into and it was like every last one of them wanted to help somebody do something different and I thought that that was pretty cool yeah, and I will say I can attest to that as well. It was like most of my experience and even just my interactions have been with Black men that have been incarcerated and their willingness and just the support that they lend me for mm-hmm. wanting to do this work. It's, mm-hmm. it's just amazing. And I do often see it's a lot of Black men that are in these roles that are, you know, trying to be peer mentors to other yeah. people that are um, being released or they're in these roles, like you said, preventative measures uh, with youth and trying to get yeah. them on a different trajectory. Yeah. Um, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with, you know, other genders or races, mm-hmm. Um but in my in my experience with black men, I can attest to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, I think it's it's important to us as a culture, right? And again, like I was saying, like to see somebody in this position that looks like me, and I'm still able to be here, um, it means something to people. Whereas, you know, other people from other backgrounds will just look at it as, you know, oh, that's Tisha, she's in this this job. But there are a lot of people who are looking at me like, you're an African-American woman and you're in this job. Like, girl, like, we're so happy for you and proud of you. And so I think for the culture, it's important. I mean, to be able to um, work with someone therapeutically who looks like you who understands you on that cultural plane, you know, um, is important. And um, I don't take it for granted at all. Like, I just look at it all as a blessing because, I mean, the whole entire time I was in school, I had said, 
we had uh, different professors um, every, I think it was like eight weeks or something like that. And so every eight weeks, we'd have to say our name, say our topic of research, and then say what we want to do with our degree when we get out. And, you know, everybody in the education program, it was kind of like, I don't want to be um, an administrator. I want to be a principal. I want to be a superintendent and all this stuff. And then they got to me and I was like, I want to be a warden. And they were like, warden and it was always like <laughs> and I was like yeah I want to design programs for incarcerated people and um it was always like a moment of like oh my god like really and I'm like yes because again these folks are getting out like a large percentage like I think it what was it 80 something 90 something percent of people that are incarcerated are getting out and don't you want as a society to have them better in a better mindset than when they went in um and I I never that always boggled my mind how people don't think about that because they're like oh they're locked away you know lock away you know lock them up and throw away the key kind of mentality and I'm like while they're in there let's do something you know we got think we got work to do and I want to do it so I did want to be a warden it didn't quite work out that way I mean I'm still kind of young so maybe I don't know, but I, I just, I'm, I'm, I am convinced, I am really convinced that helping people when they're incarcerated, um, is the key to their success on the outside and allowing people to fester, um, while they're incarcerated is not going to help them or help us as a society. And, the more resources um, and people, quality people, because there were a lot of whack programs that wanted to come in that I had to like fight and keep them out. But a lot of, you know, the quality, quality um, people, why not have them come in and, and try and help where they can? Because um, they're willing, you know? So I don't know. I'm off my soapbox, but. <laughs> and if I can add something, I, I really think it's, also just the key to public safety if like that's what we're really trying to pursue yeah um, yeah you know, let's get let's get these people's needs met mm-hmm. um and the revolving door can stop in a sense and just on a human level i'm like i i, I we were talking about the um homeless homelessness the other day and i was talking about how um you know, the key to helping our homeless population isn't traveling around in packs of 30 government officials walking around offering assistance. The key to offering homeless services is that one-on-one connection. Me being able to establish a rapport with somebody so that they know that I'm there on their side and when they're ready, they can call me for assistance. It's not about showing up in mass and then throwing everything at people. It's about being able to establish that kind of rapport. And so same thing with incarcerated people. I think, um, being able to establish a rapport and letting people know that you're on their side and having them tell us what they would like to do when they get out instead of us dictating what they need to do when they get out is is extremely important and then again having people that um understand that this is a human being this ain't you know i don't know an object this is another person so let's treat them like a person and and find out where they're at and help them get from point a to point b no, for real, because they're human at the end of the day, and I think that's what it all boils Definitely. down to. And it easily could have been one of us, because um, we've all made mistakes before. So, amen, amen. 
Um, I guess one thing I do want to ask you before we um, round up our conversation or anything Mm -hmm. is uh, recommendations, suggestions for supporting African-American men post-incarceration. What are Um, your thoughts and ideas? I think the key to having people become more successful after incarceration is to provide them with services while they're incarcerated. To help people um, realize um, how they got into the predicaments that they got into, help people change their decision-making processes, help people um, work on their substance use disorder, help people with their mental health. All of that stuff needs to take place while they're incarcerated. It's not, one again, one of those things, like, I got 20 million business cards in my office. You think I called in people? No, they just stack up. And so for me to say to a, a person that's incarcerated, here's my business card, give me a call when you get out, it's not going to help them. And so, again, I... And if I can interject, sometimes, with what phone? Hello? Hello? Yeah. And where are you going to stay when you get out? All of those things. And so I'm like, if you had somebody work with them while they were incarcerated, develop a plan with them for when they get out, and then that person makes sure that they stick to that plan, and then works with them when they're out in the community, I think things would be a whole lot different. Um, To allow people to um, walk out, just go, we call it discharge the street. Discharge the street is like, you're just setting people up for failure. And then you're like, discharge the street, and oh, by the way, tomorrow you got to report to your parole officer. With, with what best bus pass how am i getting there like where am i staying tonight you know that kind of thing so i think um another key um to all of this is really having support on the outside right um and having a place for them to go when they get out um for those people that cannot parole to a home um having a facility that's geared toward reentry um is, is crucial. Um, and we don't really have a lot of those. Right. Um, and also one of the prisons that I visited in Indiana years ago, um, it was a medium, uh, security facility. I can't, the name escapes me. Um, Sheridan, it was called Sheridan, um, Sheridan correctional facility or something like that, but it's, uh, in Indiana, Indiana, Illinois, one, two, uh, anywho, um, we went to this prison and it was a re-entry prison. And um, I wasn't, I, I don't even remember what I was there for. Oh, I was there for a gang conference. I was, that's my other specialty, gangs. So I was there in in Chicago for a gang conference. They took us to this prison for this um, uh, tour and it was a re-entry prison. It was like, we went into the, the housing pod that they lived in and in the middle, they were having a self-help group like right then and there and it was deep they were like they weren't like letting people get away with fluffy answers which i used to tell my group you can't have no fluffy answers in here um they were going to the hardest stuff and we were just walking through the tour and i was like this is some treatment i'm like okay and then we went into another building and they were learning um it was like an airplane hanger 
and there were different stations in the airplane hangar. So these folks over here were working on electrician stuff. These folks were working on machines. These people were over here doing woodwork. And then down at the other end of the airplane hangar, they were working on building roofs. So they had like some roofers union coming in, teaching class on how to build roofs. And then there was another um, part of the hangar. They were learning um, forklift driving. And then we went in another building and they were doing computers and nursing and all this stuff. And I'm just kind of like, or it was medical billing or something like that. And I was just like, what in the heck? I'm like, and then the guy said to me, here in this um, in this state, we take re-entry, we, re-entry starts the day you get in. And I was like, okay. In most states, re-entry is like two weeks before you get out. Where are you going? Like, you know what I mean? And so having, instilling hope in people while they are incarcerated is is what needs to be done and you can't just do that you know two weeks before they get out it has to be over a period of time and you have to have them walk out with something a skill um a language um a degree you know just all stuff that can position them to do better when they get out and why not it is going to cost way more money to incarcerate them again or have you know a victim their potential victim deal with whatever you know happens to them like it's cheaper <laughs> on one end um but it's also the right thing to do yeah, yeah i definitely agree um there's so much utility in just being able to plan um, re-entry planning, like, I agree that it also should start from the day you are mm-hmm. incarcerated, mm-hmm. and then that continuum of care is needed yeah. afterwards, that follow-up, yeah. that accountability, mm-hmm. um, so we can, like you said, we can start getting people mm-hmm. successful, productive. And I never really followed up on this, but I heard a rumor that in New York State, like, before it used to be, like, you could take all the trades that you wanted to take during your incarceration stay. But somebody told me they changed it and you can only have one trade. I want to find out if that's true, because if somebody's incarcerated for 10 years, why can't they learn electricity and sewing and I don't know, woodworking, whatever else they're doing in, in these days. But I'm just saying like, that makes no sense to me. Why can't you have a person learn all of these different trades? So again, they have some options when they come out. Yeah. Um, different it just, skills it, it just makes sense and when he the guy said that reentry starts the day you get incarcerated i was like that's pretty deep and he talked about even their um what do you call it like reception when you first come in he said it's done in this room and it's kind of round and there are different stations and you go from different station to different station so you'll talk to mental health you'll talk to the substance use people and you'll talk to all these people and then a plan is developed after you go through this thing and then that's when they decide which facility you're going to and I'm like okay that's pretty cool um and again like if I'm gonna come to Sheridan I could say like oh yeah I got a substance use problem I got mental health issues I got this I got that and then my program revolves around all of those different things and I think that that's pretty cool yeah Um, rather than you know just detainment or something like that and also you know education Education mm-hmm. while folks are incarcerated. I mean, let folks get degrees. I mean, like, I don't, ugh, ugh. it's, it, you know, I taught in Attica 
um, in a program that was grant funded, it was, um, there was some rich benefactor who really recognized that while people are incarcerated, they need to get educated. And so he paid for um, people to get their associate's degrees while they were incarcerated. And so there was like, they had to like, um, it was like a competition to get in. It was difficult to get in, but all the people that were in the program um, were going to come out with their associate's degrees. And so I actually taught there and I loved it. They're best students ever. They did the homework. They participated. They had, you know, they did class discussion and I was just like amazed. I mean, cause I taught in colleges and it's just like, you know, if I'm in class, I'm in class, you know, you're lucky I'm here kind of thing. And like, I, just to, to have students that were that motivated and I'm like, that's pretty cool. And like now this dude who's just done 20 years can like walk out of here with an associate's degree and probably land a better job than if he didn't have anything, you know what I mean? So, um, instilling hope, um, while people are incarcerated to keep them motivated, um, is, is key. Is key. I agree. The hope has to be there. And you have to believe that people are able to do it. And um, if we believe Mm -hmm. it, then Mm -hmm. we can start to instill that in them so that they can Mm -hmm. believe it. Mm -hmm. I do agree with you on that. Um, I guess before we get off here, the question I like to ask everybody, if there was one thing you want the audience to remember about our conversation about working with African-American men post-incarceration, what would that be? Um. It is incumbent upon us as a society to instill hope in each other and um, to recognize our criminal justice system as being um, laden, fully laden with African-American men. um, To strip them of hope is um, killing us off as a people. And it is important that um, we maintain some semblance of humanity when people are incarcerated and stripping people of hope and the ability to dream and the ability to see themselves in a different light is detrimental to us all. And um, to do it to a whole race of people it's um it's a sin (laughs) it really is it just um so I think really we need to um keep our brothers and sisters um hanging in there and holding on um for a better day and um having them hope trust believe and pray that they will um have better days so, yeah, I agree. All of that hope is important and um, mm-hmm. helping build our brothers and our sisters and our community, mm-hmm. um, especially those that are going through this process and mm-hmm. dream big and believe mm-hmm. that they're capable. So that's right. Right. Um, well, Dr. Right. Smith, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one more thing. I have a friend, um, Dr. Thomas Priester, who did this research on hope theory, and uh, he did this hope scale on our class are, are all these doctors, all these potential doctors and, um, hope was low. Hope was low. And then he did the, um, hope scale, um, on our class, um, in Attica and, um, hope was high. And I was like, do you think that it was because they, 
Um, we're only saying what you wanted to hear. And he's like, no, I, I think they were telling the truth. And I was like, you know what? You got to have hope to maintain in that environment. Right. And so that's why I answered my question with hope, because without that, without that belief that you can do better or that you're going to get out and that life's going to change and that, you know, um, you ain't coming back here without that, you're just doomed. And so that's why I answered the question that way, because I think um, um, when you take that away from a person, you strip them of a lot of things, a lot. I definitely agree with that. Um, and I want to say thank you for coming on and just talking about your oh, experiences, thank you. um, your research and everything. Um, I hope our audience was able to gain something from today. I know I definitely yeah. did. Yeah, um, thank you. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, the additional work that you do. Um, if there's any, if you are, if you all are interested in um, learning more about Dr. Smith, I will make sure I put all information in the description box per the usual um, as well as if you're just interested in learning more about more life and what we're doing, um, you can always follow us on Instagram at more life, the reentry podcast. And we are always grateful uh, for our audience and people that tune in regularly with us. Um, just make sure you push the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode um, and review and rate as well. Thank you. Thanks.